Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And in celebration of the holidays, we're here to talk about some holiday horror, some Christmas horror. Yeah, that film is called Night of the Comet. That's right. It's a little Christmas adjacent, I would say. (laughs) It's kind of incidentally Christmas, like so many other Christmas horror movies. It's okay. They don't have to like shove Christmas right in your face, right? I mean, like... And I'm glad they don't. Yeah. I yeah, mean, this takes place in LA after all. Which I mean, how do they even celebrate Christmas? I mean, I mean, I'm sure like most other people, but do they even like have a a, a changing of seasons like we do here in Texas? I mean, well, like- <laughs> do we even compared to like Massachusetts? It's <laughs> yeah, not like you're no. getting heaps of snow on Christmas Day, you know? And thank God we don't really. <laughs> Night of the Comet is a 1984 American science fiction comedy horror film written and directed by Tom Eberhardt. The film stars Catherine Mary Stewart, Kelly Maroney, and Robert Beltran as survivors of a comet that has turned most people into either dust or zombies, and how they navigate the post-apocalyptic city during the holiday season. When writing the script, Eberhardt wanted to merge the idea of strong female protagonists with his love of apocalyptic films set in empty cities. Further inspiration came from Eberhardt working with some teenage girls for a TBS series. When asked what they thought about the idea of living in a post-apocalyptic city, they said it would be a great adventure, and only saw a downside when it came to the idea of dating. So, the script was written to be lighthearted and adventuresome. The film was greenlit when Atlantic wanted to cash in on the success of Valley Girl and Repo Man. In fact, the movie was produced by Andrew Lane and Wayne Crawford, the team behind Valley Girl. Since its release, Night of the Comet has achieved a cult following, and its influence can be seen throughout pop culture, most notably in the character of Buffy Summers from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. One of our favorites. That's right. All right, everyone. Here's hoping your daddy got you some Uzis. This is Night of the Comet. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? We're talking ghost town! Who would you see? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. Ah! What would you do? Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Well, get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but you will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. What do you give me if I come back? Texas. Night of the comet. I'll be taking requests from all you teenage comet zombies. The night the teenagers ruled the world. Night of the Comet. The garden of civilization is on us. Fiction, isn't it? In the early 1980s, the Earth is passing through the tail of an enormous comet, an event the likes of which has not taken place for at least 65 million years and coincided with the dinosaur's extinction. The comet will pass 11 days before Christmas, and on the night of the comet Passover event, large crowds have gathered in the streets to watch, while others are hosting viewing parties in their homes. 
18-year-old Regina, or Reggie, Belmont, played by Catherine Mary Stewart, works at the El Rey Theater in LA. She's annoyed to find that one of her high scores in the theater's Tempest arcade game has been replaced by someone with the initials DMK. After getting a scolding from her boss about her job performance, she agrees to spend the night in the steel projection booth with her boyfriend, the projectionist, so he can smuggle out a film reel to be illegally copied. She calls her sister Samantha, played by Kelly Maroney, who goes by Sam, to help her lie to their stepmom, Doris, about staying out all night. After the phone call, Sam accuses her stepmother of cheating on her father, who is away on active military duty. During the argument, Doris slaps Sam, who slaps her back. Then, Doris punches Sam right in the kisser. <laughs> she, like, flies over that fucking couch. Too. <laughs> and it's just like, ow. Oh. <laughs> the next morning, Reggie's boyfriend leaves to find the man with the film reel, but is attacked and killed by a zombie-like man wielding a pipe wrench. Meanwhile, Reggie reclaims her score on the Tempest arcade game and then heads outside to find the sky covered by a reddish haze, which she assumes is typical LA smog. However, she notices there are piles of clothes and red dust all over the sidewalks. After accidentally locking herself out of the theater, she heads down an alley to get back inside, but is attacked by the same zombie that had assaulted her boyfriend. She tells him that she's been trained to take care of herself, and after a brief scuffle, she escapes on her boyfriend's motorcycle. She makes her way through the deserted streets of LA to her home, to find her sister getting ready for cheerleading practice. Sam tells her that she took off to join the festivities after the fight with her stepmother the night before, but ended up falling asleep in a steel lawn shed. Reggie attempts to explain to Sam that everyone has died and turned to dust during the comet's passing. While discussing the mass extinction, they hear a DJ on the radio. Excited to find out that someone else might have survived, they leave for the station, only to find that it was a pre-recorded show. A man, Hector Gomez, played by Robert Beltran, surprises them and tells them that he spent the night in the back of his steel truck, meaning he too was saved from the combat's effects. He tells the girls about a horde of zombies killing a girl who he had picked up, and Reggie realizes what must have happened to her boyfriend. When Sam starts playing DJ and speaks into the station's microphone, she's heard by a group of scientists in an underground bunker in the desert. They call the station and tell her they will come and save them. At the bunker, the scientists discuss the zombies and conclude that, while the effects of the comet are working slower on some people, they too will eventually turn to dust. Hector plans to travel to San Diego to check on his family, much to the dismay of Reggie, but he promises that he'll come back for them. Later, Sam has a dream where she's drinking and driving through the empty streets of LA when some cops attempt to pull her over. They are, of course, zombies. She wakes, horrified, and goes to the bathroom to clean up, only to be accosted by another zombie cop. She wakes up screaming, realizing that all of it was just a dream, and is comforted by Reggie. Sam complains that Reggie always steals the guys she likes, and now there are probably no more men left for her on Earth. Hector arrives in San Diego to find his family has vanished like everyone else. He is attacked by a crazed zombie child, but manages to escape. Back in LA, the girls have some target practice with Mac-10 submachine guns on an abandoned car, and talk about how their father gave them military-like training when they were younger. Sam has developed a rash, which she says she gets when nervous, and complains about being in the same clothes for so many days. The girls decide to loot a deserted department store for clothes and makeup, you know, essentials, but they're not alone. 
A group of stock boys, who have slowly been turning into zombies, watch them from security cameras. They get Sam's gun, but Reggie gets hers in time. There's a shootout throughout the store, but eventually Sam and Reggie are captured. The gang takes them into the stock room and prepares to kill them, but suddenly the group of scientists and their armed guards shoot the stock boys. They notice Sam scratching her rash and deduce that she must be experiencing the comet's effects. They send Reggie to the bunker via helicopter and keep Sam behind. Audrey White, played by Mary Warrenov, a disillusioned scientist weary of the group's plans, volunteers to euthanize Sam herself. She tells Sam that she has some medicine that will cure her symptoms, but in reality, Sam dies from the injection. Audrey then shoots the fellow scientist who stayed behind with her. She then heads to the radio station to wait for Hector to return. Hector arrives at the station dressed as Santa, carrying gifts, but is surprised when Audrey's there and pointing a gun at him. She tells him that she's written down the scientist's plans, and then injects herself with the euthanasia and dies. Back at the bunker, Reggie is being questioned about her health, and other scientists are harvesting the blood from survivors to make a serum that might save them from becoming zombies and eventually dust. The scientists weren't very smart, apparently, as they had left their air ducts open during the comet's passing, and they are starting to waste away. Reggie escapes the room she's in and saves two children before their blood can be harvested. Topside, Hector has made his way to the bunker and calls a guard over to look at a girl in his trunk. It's Sam's corpse. The guard says he's not impressed because the girl's dead, but then Sam opens her eyes. Audrey had not given her the lethal injection after all, and had only knocked her unconscious to save her from the other scientists. They incapacitate the guard and gain entrance. While Sam goes in to find Reggie, Hector rigs some explosives to a base vehicle. Reggie and Sam escape to the top, with some guards and scientists hot on their trail. They, along with the kids, escape the bunker with Hector, but he stops to watch the scientists getting into their vehicle. The lead scientist has fully become a zombie. He starts the jeep, and it explodes. While watching the flames, Sam is attacked by another zombie scientist, whom they shoot. After the successful escape and bloodbath, they all head back to LA. Sometime later, Hector and Reggie have assumed the parental rules for the children. Sam watches as they wait at a crosswalk. She argues that they don't have to wait because there's no one else around. She crosses towards them in defiance, against the light, and is almost hit by a speeding motorist who just happens to be a cute guy around her age. <laughs> Realizing that she may not have to spend her life alone after all, Sam gets into the car with the guy for an impromptu date. Reggie and Hector demand to know the man's name before they take off, which is Danny Mason Keener. The two speed off, revealing the vanity plate in the car. D.M.K. Mary and... <laughs> wow, good. I like that synopsis. So Night of the Comet was released on November 16th, 1984 on 1,098 screens. It opened at number 3 at the box office, making a little more than $3.5 million its first weekend. The movie would go on to play for six weeks and would eventually gross more than $14 million against a budget of only $700,000. The movie is notable for being one of the first films to receive a PG-13 rating from the MPAA. Night of the Comet holds a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an audience score sitting at 58%. The site's consensus reads, 
Valley Girl culture satire Night of the Comet gets a lot of mileage of its slapstick sci-fi zombie approach. <laughs> uh, Variety wrote that Eberhardt creates a visually arresting B-picture in the neon primary colors of Liquid Sky. It is a successful pastiche of numerous science fiction films executed with a tongue-in-cheek flair that compensates for its lack of originality. Author Neil Gaiman wrote in 1985 that the film was one of the most witty, imaginative, and thought-provoking films I've seen that was made with no budget and is also cheap exploitation. <laughs> no game, I'm such a poet. <clears throat> it has some accolades. Well, one, really, I guess. Um, it was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress, and that's Mary Waranov, who played Audrey White, the scientist. However, she lost that year to Polly Holiday, who was uh, playing Ruby Deagle in Gremlins. So. <laughs> Another Christmas miracle. That's right. Of a horror film. Mm-hmm. 1984, good for Christmas War. As we said earlier, the movie has earned a cult following in the decades since its release. Bloody Disgusting ranked at number 10 on their top 10 doomsday horror films. Moroni's character, Sam, was an influence on Joss Whedon when he created Buffy Summers, as we stated earlier. Yep. In October of 2018, Orion hired Roxanne Benjamin to create a remake of the movie, and as of April 2019, she says that she has submitted her script. So this has been rumored for a while, and I really like Roxanne Benjamin. I think that she's a great director. She did um, The Body at um, Brighton Rock, right? Did, did you ever watch hmm. that? No. Yeah, I mean, it's she, she's, a, she's a really good director. She has a good eye for horror, and uh, she's been involved in some anthologies like Southbound and XY, and so I'm interested to see what she'll do with this. So, do you want to walk our way a little bit through this movie? Do it. So our, <laughs> so our movie starts with actual narration, right? Where it's talking about, like, since the beginning of time, there's been this <laughs> comment that, you know... That's right. It starts off very, like, documentary style to me, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's a really good way to, like, fill in the gaps of what's going on or get things, like, started super quickly, right? Yeah. Another movie that does this to really great effect is Little Shop of Horrors, you know, also from the 80s, right? And um, also talking about... Or even about- The Thing. Yeah. That does it with uh, visual storytelling by saying, like, 100,000 years ago or whatever, just shows the spaceship landing and that's all we, that's all we get. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, it's kind of like that same kind of intro where it just sets up the premise and then the story starts. And I like I like this narration because it really does tell you everything you need to know about the comet in a really quick manner, right? Like, we know that it killed all the dinosaurs, obviously. We know that it's coming to Earth and people are, like, watching it. And we also know that the scientists actually exist and they're, like, descending into the bunker, right, during that narration yeah. period. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a really good, quick way to start this movie. I wish I knew their name. Does it, did it ever, like, show us or tell us what the name of the scientist that group was? Because their their symbol or whatever, and the layout of their whole thing was like this like Bond villain esque like maze, and the symbol was like a maze or a labyrinth. So mm-hmm. I wonder if they were based off of something. I don't know. It didn't. It doesn't tell you the name, but to me, whenever I see the symbol that is their organization, it looks like one of those fucking like toy mazes you get from the doctor's office when you're like a toddler, right? And you have to get yeah. the BB to go into the hole. So I'm just like, <laughs> oh, see, you're talking about like the little wooden toy, and I was like, Theseus. <laughs> no, I mean, like, literally, a little toy. I mean, come on. Theseus and the Minotaur. <laughs> yeah, you're going way too deep with it. It's none of the comment, okay. for God's sakes, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think this movie is uh, deep where it needs to be, right where it feels good. <laughs> yeah. 
deep, deep in the heart. So anyway, yeah. Uh, the first act I like to call The Happening. Mm-hmm. Thank you, M. Knight. Yeah, so we start off at our theater, right? The famous El Rey. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we are introduced to none other than Reggie, who is played by the wonderful Catherine Mary Stewart, uh, who we also see in uh, films like Mischief or The Last Starfighter or Weekend at Bernie's. I really love her in The Last Starfighter, too. I think it's a really underrated, like... I haven't seen that in so long. It's so good. I haven't seen it in a long time, either. And I was re-watching Night of the Comet, obviously, and I was like, oh, I love The Last Starfighter. Like, I, I want to see her more. In fact, I don't know why she didn't, like, catch on more in the 80s, really. Really? Because she was a standout. I was like, where is she? Why, why didn't she get, like, Sigourney Weavered into pop culture? Exactly. I mean, like, she... She really looks like quintessentially like an 80s heroine. And I don't know, maybe it's the hair or something, but she's just delightful. Well, the way she said her some of her lines and stuff, too, I was just like, she's right up, you know, she could be right up there. She could have launched like an action heroine career or something. Definitely. You know, but uh, anyway, so she's playing her arcade game and she's being reamed by her boss who... You know, it's not offering her gifts and trinkets, but <laughs> it's offering her, you know, do your job or you're getting fired. A flashlight. Which, you know, yeah. she should be doing. Well, he's offering gifts and trinkets to the people at that <laughs> store. He's like That's trying true. to show them the different kinds of headbands they can wear. The with whole them. goddamn intro was like between the news and like, and then like him just talking to people about, look, these ones bounce. Look at the bouncy ones. This one's nine ninety five or something like that. Nine fifty. Like, it's nine fifty. Like, come on. I'm like, really? Like, even in 1984, you're paying like ten dollars for that bullshit. <laughs> I mean, people gouge at times like a comet. So I'm like, I wouldn't pay ten dollars for that now. It'd be like two dollars. <laughs> Yes, you would. Should cost twenty five cents back in nineteen eighty four. Stupid little celebratory head bouncy things. I fucking hate those things. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the newscaster too, because that was like the worst fucking newscaster of all time. He was just like, "Yeah, look behind me." He was just so like beyond matter of fact or just silly. Back when the news was boring, as it should be, they just picked an actor off the street. And you're like, "Okay, you're playing a newscaster. Here you yeah. go." So of course, then she wants to fuck off and just goes into going to the uh, you know the projection room which is steel lined as we notice mm-hmm. later in the story that's important and basically spends the night with her boyfriend i didn't think it was her boyfriend i just thought it was like a friend who ended up she just ended up sleeping with well i think we get the idea that she's like slept with him a couple times right because her boss says and don't go to the projection booth because he's doing to you what he's doing to me oh. you know what i mean like yeah you know <laughs> So, I mean, they've, they've done it before, you know, so she takes some popcorn that she's probably pilfered and heads up to that projection booth. And her boyfriend is, you know, making this plan to smuggle out a film reel of a movie that, you know, is probably pretty rare to be copied illegally. And they'll have to stay overnight in the theater, you know, to get the film reel back before the theater opens the following day. But all of this is just fluff for setup of how she survives. It gets him out of the way really quickly in the next morning. But meanwhile, she's calling her sister, who is, of course, played by the the wonderful Kelly Maroney. She is wonderful. Who we've seen in her first film, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and of course in Chopping Mall. Mm-hmm. You know, another kind of star in this film that, you know, I wish was a little more prolific, um, you know, later on, because she's just great and i can totally see her as a kind of an archetype an early you know uh, archetype for like a buffy summers and she she's been in you know a really good array of horror movies i think that yeah when it comes to the two actresses who are the leads in this movie 
I think that horror fans really, you know, rally around Kelly Maroney a lot. She's very, yeah. she's an outspoken actress who likes to be in horror films and she's been in, she's been in several, you know, and she's, she's just really good. Always. Yeah. But then we get that phone call, right? <laughs> so yeah. she's like, well, lie to, lie to her. And she's like, she's not going to go for it. And then there's this great exchange between, you know, Sam, Kelly Maroney's character and Doris, their stepmother played by Sharon Farrell. And it's just it's so off the wall. You know, it's like, <laughs> I have to do a quick aside here because Sam has so many great lines in here. And like one of the things that she says to Doris that makes Doris slap her is you were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. <laughs> right. Because she, she accused her stepmom of like sleeping with the neighbor while their dad's away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really funny. And the the way that like they're just holding the phone between the two of them and sort of having a conversation to and about Reggie is just hilarious to me. They slap the shit out of each other and finally Doris just punches <laughs> Sam in the mouth. She flies across the room and she's just kind of like okay with it. It's like a typical like Thursday night or something like that. I think that's the point in this movie that you know like you're not supposed to be taking all the events or the characters, or anything really all that seriously, right? And the characters aren't either, though. Like, yeah. And it's from, like, moment one. And so it really does a great job of striking this tone that's super, super consistent and knows itself all throughout the movie. That's right. I mean, for real. I, th- that punch and that fly over the couch <laughs> and her touching her lip in such a way that you know she's like coming up with some sort of plan on what she's going to do, which we find out later on. You know, I'm like, great. This movie is this movie's funny and it's supposed to be. So it's okay to laugh at it. And yeah, yeah I think that's a really great moment. So then, of course, the comet happens and we kind of see, you know, Doris kind of like touching her skin a little bit and looking up worried at the sky. You know, we get the psychedelic, you know, 2001, a space odyssey sky for a few seconds and then it's morning and we see the aftermath, right? When, uh, it's essentially when Catherine sees it, uh, or I guess Reggie is her real name <laughs> or yeah. the, the name of the movie. Her character's name. Yeah. Yeah. Her character's name. Yeah. And so we see the dust and we see, you know, her boyfriend had previously been killed. She doesn't know, you know, uh, when he left. And so she steps out, she accidentally locks herself from the, from the theater and has to like hop on the bike to escape that zombie and essentially ride through this red hazed, empty LA. So, I mean, I would really consider this like the second act of the movie. What do you call this second act? Well, that's like, to me, the opening up to a whole new world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't you dare close your eyes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it's basically the aftermath, right? A whole new world where there's no one else, uh, mm-hmm. except for dust people, which are no longer people, zombies that are becoming dust, you know, and then the few survivors. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people are just gone and dusted. So what do you think about, like, so we're, we're given an idea of what zombies in this particular movie or universe, you know, cinematically, look and act like right so these zombies are not quite what we're used to in a zombie film like they're obviously coherent enough to talk and act and fight right yeah and that's that's something that i kind of wish they'd done more with because you do kind of see a transition of people kind of becoming zombies but you don't see the transition of zombies to dust really Mm -hmm. but the first one that we meet is right outside that movie theater exit side exit when uh reggie's boyfriend is killed by by Mm -hmm. a pipe wrench wielding zombie and you know reggie after she you know defeats dmk on tempest 
goes outside and she has that interaction and they have a conversation, right? Which is something that we're not used to doing with zombies where she tells them flat out. Yeah. It's talking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I've been trained to take care of myself and he's like, come here or whatever, you know? And so like we get our first glimpse that, you know, at least Reggie, you know, is able to take care of herself in a, a, a variety of situations. Right. So, yeah, but I'm finally kind of getting your point about the zombies because they are speaking. It's just like, they go down to the, the, you know, famed base instincts of a zombie, but they can still kind of talk, you know, right. it's just like, they don't want anything else. They have no memory anymore. Really. All they know is what they want. Exactly. And they want to eat things and they want to, you know, kill things. And it's kind of like a rage virusy kind of, they, they are very kind of unique zombies. I would have to say, cause it's, you know, it's really just them all devolving into this like zombie rage dementia before they just fall to dust. Yeah, I think I think they're super unique to like an apocalyptic sense of what a zombie is, right? Especially when we talk about things like radiation or comets or anything space related. You know, we see like people being more mutiny than zombies, right? Yeah, they're but, more like Morlockian or something. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, like, the, the that first zombie in that alleyway sort of gives us a clue of what they face, right? So, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I like that interaction. I also like that Reggie can, like, beat the shit out of that zombie, get on a motorcycle. She knows how to drive it immediately, right? She's driving through the streets of Los Angeles, which are completely deserted, you know? Yeah, one little thing that I thought was interesting there is she does not look for her boyfriend. Her, his bike's still there. She doesn't realize until after the fact. I'm like, that's another thing that made me think, oh, yeah, that's not like a serious relationship right there. <laughs> oh, no, of course not. She finds blood on the ground. She touches it. Yeah. She's like, gross. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, ooh, boyfriend. And then she like, yeah, hops on it. <laughs> She hops on his fucking motorcycle and like takes off, right? Yeah. And then we have that car like sitting at the red light, right? Perpetually playing Christmas music from the radio and she stops and looks, she stops at the red light and like looks into it and then leaves when it turns green, you know, that's the director's car, by the way. Is it really? I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So then she, of course she reunites and it feels so good with Sam reunited and it feels so good. And of course, Sam is just like getting ready. She had, uh, she'd gone out, you know, after that fight with the stepmom and, you know, I guess there's a little bit of a plot hole there cause she went out to like enjoy the party, but, she didn't because she ended up falling asleep in a, in a steel shed. Yeah. She says, so when she finally gets there, she's joking to Reggie and she was like, yeah, I wrote a note. I ran away last night. I wrote a note that said I was leaving forever. And she's like, but we have you know cheerleading practice tomorrow. So I thought I'll just sleep in this lawn shed, um, a steel lawn shed. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll split in the morning or whatever. So she wakes up, there's nobody around. She's making breakfast. She's already ready for cheerleading practice and, you know, Reggie's home and they've, you know, we're talking about it. Yeah. And it's not like any of these like steel sheds or trucks or anything have like closed air vents either. (laughs) So it's just, it's still, it's, it goes with the theme of, you know, it's not, it's a little tongue in cheek all the way through, which is fine, you know? And then they they hear the radio. And so they're like, oh, shit, someone's still around. And whoever this DJ is, he either doesn't understand or he's just cavalierly (laughs) continuing the show. The show must go on anyway. So they, like, hightail it over to the radio station to go see if there's any other survivors. And it ends up being just, like, the pre-recorded show. Mm -hmm. By the way, I love that, that whole set. There's neon everywhere. There's like this cool leather couch. They just put that shit together in a warehouse, you know, behind the scenes. But I mean, I just love the whole look and feel of that whole set. 
Can't you like really imagine that's what an 80s radio station would look like, right? Super open concept. Lots of neon. Records <laughs> everywhere. You know, I mean, like it's it, like to me. As a kid, I was just like, yeah, that's that's what radio stations are. You know, it, it, it was the opposite of what I would have thought, you know, because I, I keep thinking of like the Wolfman Jack kind of like enclosed set where you're just surrounded by all these tapes and records and everything else and phone lines. But, you know, this was like completely opposite to that. And I actually kind of dug it. You know, I really liked the the look and feel of the set. It was neon everywhere. Smoke. It was just like it was it was almost like it was meant to be a club, not a radio station or like, I don't know, a Coke den. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sure the radio stations in 1984 were also Coke dens. So I mean, it's all <laughs> right. Real. I do like that. Um, like the, the, the radio plays a huge part in this. Right. And I, this is part of the reason why I think that like future generations might not really understand this movie a lot. Cause I mean, like how often do you listen to the actual radio these days? Sometimes only on commute. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, so I, I, I shudder to think that some younger people and some of our younger listeners maybe are like, what's a radio station? You well, even I mean? that, but the the boom boxes they would carry around with them to listen, yes. you know, which was a kind of a theme later on when they go to the mall. But I digress because we're getting ahead of ourselves. But at the radio station, we are introduced to our third main character, and that is Hector. Yo, check out Tay. Ew, Chicote. <laughs> yeah, so of course, uh, Hector is played by Robert Beltran, who, you know, is really mostly known for um, his role as the first officer on Star Trek Voyager. That's what I know him from, for sure. Yeah, well, he and um, I guess Mary Warrenoff were on something uh, in a movie like earlier in the decade, like What's Eating Raoul or something, Eating Raoul. Yeah, Eating Raul is this really bizarre movie about um, people who own a restaurant and they end up killing someone and serving his flesh as their food and they continue to do so. Yo, check out It's a really, really strange movie that could only happen in the 80s, but I I like it. Yeah, well, so that was them. They were both in that movie together. Yeah, he was Raul in that movie. Yeah, he was. (laughs) So anyway, they, uh, they meet. And, you know, they get a call. Of course, Sam is playing DJ while they're flirting with each other. You know, Reggie and and Hector are flirting. And uh, so the scientists hear them. And so they call in. And, um, you know, yet again, we get another nice little line from from Sam. She's like, because the, the, the phone call mm-hmm. uh, is cut short. And she's like, you're not going to blame me because the phone went dead. I'm not the phone company. Nobody's the phone company anymore. <laughs> I really like that entire exchange between the three of them at that point, because they're just talking over the air on that microphone. It's off camera. Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, like you can hear everything they're saying. The scientists are like, okay, like what? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I don't know what they said. They said something about a think tank and they're coming. Do they say when? I don't know. (laughs) It's just great. For real. So, yeah. So at that point, I think Hector has to say like, well, I need to go check. I need to go check on my family and I'll be back to save you guys, pick you as up, whatever you guys want to do from here, but I'll be back. Right. That's right. Yeah. So meanwhile, the girls are practicing their, their auto gun play. We don't know where they got the guns, but they, they picked them up from somewhere. They know where to get them because they were trained when they're younger yeah. years by their military father, mm-hmm. you know, and yet again, you know, actually before Hector goes, they're practicing and, and Hector's like, oh, you're pretty good with that thing or something. And she goes, come on, Hector, the Mac 10 submachine gun was practically designed for housewives. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then later, yet another wonderful quote, my favorite probably from the whole thing, um, is when the sisters are practicing together and the the gun keeps catching. The Mac-10 keeps like catching and not firing. And so Sam goes, see, this is the problem with these things. Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. <laughs> I really enjoy these moments in this movie because this movie to me is so much about the characters, right? And, and what they do and like everything else in this movie is so incidental, like the comet, the horror, everything is so incidental, right? It's just really about these two young women. And I think that doesn't, it's very rare in the eighties or even today to find a movie that's like that. Right. Yeah. They're very full fleshed out characters. You, you can tell who they are, right? They're not, pure archetypes or stereotypes, but they are who they are and everything else is kind of just happening around them, which is really how a great character story, character driven story is anyway. Yeah. Cause I was watching this movie yesterday. I mean, at the time of this recording and I, I paused it cause I was just like, how long have I been watching this and nothing seems to be happening, but I love these characters <laughs> so much. And I paused it. It's like 45 minutes into the movie. I was like, it's almost halfway over and nothing is happening and I don't care. <laughs> so, well, I was actually noticing halfway through, I was like, this really feels like a, like a Christopher Pike book or something. This mm. feels like a like a teenage horror novel, you know, for young adults or something. And it has that vibe to it. It's just a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than that. It's got more humor. It's much more lighthearted, you know. And it's very, very consistent. I can't say that enough about this movie. It knows its tone. It knows itself so well that it strikes that balance. And it's kind of a razor's edge balance to achieve all the way through. Because things are happening and they're serious, but they don't take them seriously and neither do we. Right. And I, I, I think that's what is most important about this particular movie, right? But I mean, no 80s movie is complete without a costume-changed montage. So Yeah, to me, we're entering our third act where the you know we have the whole other shoe is dropping, right? The scientists are there with their master plan. And uh, meanwhile, the girls are going to the mall while they're waiting for Hector, you know? To get new clothes and new makeup and everything else. And I just love the montage of girls just want to have fun where they set the fucking Mac 10 automatic gun down <laughs> on the on the, the fucking shoe display with the with the high high heeled shoes, you know? Yeah. It's a great juxtaposition of like like mall culture and, you know, eighties adventure action movies, right? Because that's what the eighties were about to me, like, you know, consumerism and expense and also like going to the movies was always about like, action and like always something happening in film. Right. So, but at the same time, it was kind of like, if I could choose like one poster for this movie, it would almost be that, mm-hmm. you know, other than the obvious like cityscape with the red haze or whatever night of the comet with some like screaming, floating faces of teenagers. But really it's this picture of this automatic like, gun, you know, Amongst those high-heeled shoes. So if you are a designer for Mondo posters and you're listening, that's what we want to see. Go make it. So we it, can it might even exist. But I mean, it's that because like these girls, they're not the story's not going out of its way to show like, oh, these are hardcore girls, they're so different from other ones. It's so incidental to their characters that they just like pick up a gun and they feel so natural with it, you know? Yeah. They're just natural born badasses. <laughs> you know, and it's um, you know, there's a there's a reason for that in the in the context of the story, like with their father. But I mean, it's kind of a throwaway, right? It's just, it's so incidental, but it's so important to the telling of the story. And I love it. I agree. We get more conversation from the the sisters now about like the main thing between them, right? They're obviously very close. 
But the thing they have between them is men, right? Like they're both horny 80s teenagers. And even while they're trying on these clothes and their guns are put down and Reggie's putting on some makeup in a mirror, Sam brings up Hector again because it's like the last man that they could possibly see at this point. And Reggie has already sort of like built a connection with Hector. And Sam is starting to feel a little left out, a little third wheelie, right? Yeah. And so she, she talks about that. And I mean, that's like to me... They, they bring that up quite a bit, right? Is about like boys and and clothes and things like that. And and I think that like Sam obviously really wants to have a boyfriend. Yeah, so. it doesn't try to run away from some stereotypes in it, you know, and it runs towards others. But I mean, I, I do, it does make me wonder, does this movie actually like pass the Bechdel test? And I think it does in some scenes and it doesn't in others. And I think that's yeah. reality, you know? Yep. And for those of you not in the know, the Bechdel test is essentially rule set up for like realistic women where women exist in your story that are talking to each other and it's not about men. Exactly. Right. right. Essentially are the rules. And it happens a lot in this. And I I think that I think the movie probably could have like done without it, although we would have lost the character of Hector a little bit. But I don't know. I mean, we could see what the remake has in store, but well, they're teenagers. Their whole whole world is like consumerism, school you know, whatever sport they're doing, if any, and like dating, you know, and that would have been the same for men. They would have been talking about girls, you know? So I'm surprised that that gang, if they weren't, you know, zombified, they more realistically would have been like kind of a rape gang rather than trying to just murder them. Yeah. It's kind of hinted at that they wanted to like eat them, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, versus like rape them. But it's, it's kind of eluded. So, we could talk about the gang now, yeah. right? Because this is this is the scene where the gang pops up and um, in the mall, yeah. And we have um, uh, a group of stock boys who are watching them through security cameras, and they know they're there, and they're sort of like forming their own plan. And um, I kind of like that the stock boys talk about like living the American dream, right? They're like, <laughs> they're yep. like, now, now we can live the American dream. We started the stock boys and now we own the store, right? <laughs> and I'm like, what a fucking comment is that? They got to do that in like a day's time or whatever. But. Yeah, that's the, yeah, the cruel irony. But of course, uh, these stock boys did a good job, especially the Ivan Roth as Willie. He looks super, super creepy. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he has another of those lines. Um, where, you know, Regina says, you're crazy. And he goes, I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know, he really was like so good in that role. Like he's just like, he delivers his lines in such a really good, like funny tongue in cheek way. And I just like, he cracks me up. And he actually looks scary with his glasses off. He actually kind of creeped me out. Yes. And then of course his uh, fellow uh, stock boys played by Chris Patterson as uh, one of the stock boys and Dick Rude as the other must be the <laughs> the cousin of General Bastard <laughs> from Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Dick Rude. My God, if I didn't already have a drag name, I mean, what's your name, Dick? <laughs> what's your last name, Rude? <laughs> My God, what an unfortunate name. I wonder if that's a stage name, like a like a porn name or something. Oh, I was gonna be like, of course, this is da- if an actual parent named their child Dick Rude. I mean, like. A, I want to meet them, and B, how unfortunate. I bet the parents name him Richard Rude, you know? <laughs> and then he just goes by Dick. <laughs> Richard Rude. <laughs> I mean, I'm fine with alliteration. But there's this whole shootout in the mall, right? The girls are, you know, ending their shopping spree, and they have to go and find their guns, and only Reggie can get to hers. And there's this massive fucking shootout. 
and the girls are taken prisoner and chained up. And like you said before, they're alluding that they're going to eat them. But he he sort of plays like this weird Russian roulette moment with them. Yeah. And to me, that's like one of the scariest points in this movie. It's when he's like pulling that trigger and holding that gun at her head. And he's like, not that one, not that one. Is it even loaded? And pulls it out. But he also has that monologue where he's just talking about you don't even what in your worst nightmares you don't even know what we want to do yeah. to you. Oh my god, it's just like to me, like like that is the most frightening point in this movie. And I it's a it's a stark reminder that, you know, in times of the apocalypse, which, you know, we haven't really experienced, you know, what what can possibly happen to you? And everything seems so carefree in this movie. Even the fucking zombies at this, you know, point are kind of carefree until they are actually chained up in that fucking stock room and someone's playing Russian roulette with them. It's just Yeah. And they're kind of the symbol or, you know, they're the straw man, I guess for, well, I guess they're the only thing in this film that's symbolic of the social degradation that would happen. Right. Cause everyone else is kind of like, you know, the scientists have their own thing going on. They don't symbolize social degradation. Like you'd see like a Mad Max or something like that. Like these guys right. are that. Right. But then we get the, the deus ex machina quickly turned, you know, like uh, out of the frying pan into the fire situation with the scientists showing up and killing those guys and quote unquote saving them. Right. And they do. So they show up, they, they shoot all the stock boys <clears throat> and the girls think that they're saved. Right. Yeah. Until the scientists start to notice Sam scratching at herself a lot and telling them, you know, I have a rash. Yeah. And so we we have had little bits and pieces of uh, Audrey White, who is, uh, you know, a doctor that's or a scientist, I guess, for that, you know, group uh, think tank or whatever that you want to call tank. it. <laughs> Theseus group. Um <laughs> who is disillusioned with the whole thing. And now that she knows she's going to die and they're pulling in other people to try and save themselves and live off their blood or whatever, try and, and, and get some sort of like cure with like the, the real survivor's blood or whatever. She's like, no, 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 no. So she's, she's not about that. So she kind of volunteers to stay behind and euthanize Sam, but she's babysat by another one who kind of recognized her disillusionment earlier. So she fake, you know, she fake kills Sam by putting a shot in her or whatever, which we don't, or we don't figure out until later. And then she kills the other scientist that was, that stayed behind to kind of watch her. So did you think that Sam was dead at that point in the movie? No, I thought this woman is disillusioned with what they're doing. And so she's there to, you know, you know, save her or whatever. And so that's, why she shot the guy that's the only reason so i was like sam's gonna come back later although strangely uh hector later says oh it was sodium it was only sodium pitothal i was like that is euthanasia essentially right is it really yes you can use small doses of it like in i think like in india they still use it as like a truth serum yeah you know but they it's a barbiturate right so it's like it's it's used to like calm you don't use enough of it it euthanizes you right so it's the same thing she just didn't use a dose i guess in the story. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it wasn't a different drug. She just didn't use enough of it. She just made her pass out. As a kid, I mean, so I I saw Night of the Comet for the first time probably when I was around like nine or ten, right? So that would have been like nineteen eighty eight, you know, nineteen eighty nine era. So, you know, at least a good like five years after the movie was released. And my parents had recorded this movie off of cable when I was younger and they had watched it a couple times. And so I finally had like pulled it out. But when I was younger, I 
you know, thought really that she was dead. And I, even at that young age, I was like, what a terrible way to kill off what a really good character she is, <laughs> you know? And so like later on, which we'll talk about soon, you know, there's a surprise coming up. So. Exactly. And of course, you know that from the synopsis or from watching the film, you know? Right. But um, yeah. So we learn about that evil plan of them trying to synthesize some kind of cure from, you know, two children's blood and then from uh, Reggie's blood, you know, so, you know, Reggie was up for the same kind of fate as her sister. That's right. So, I mean, like, they have a group of adults that they've already made brain dead, right? Yeah. And, like, so, like, they're they're alive enough to regenerate blood, which these scientists will need to craft a serum to save their own lives. They also have a couple children, which they're going to gas and, you know, do the same thing to. And we're given this, like, scene, which I find incredibly funny, between two female scientists while they're dealing with the kids. And they're sort of, like, talking about what the plan is around the children and telling them, like, you're just going to laugh. And, you know, once we give you the gas, you're going to go spend uh, your the rest of your life with Santa Claus in the North Pole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like And Reggie hears ridiculous. that and she goes, that's so sick. <laughs> <laughs> and the older the older kid gets it he's like santa doesn't exist <laughs> that's right yeah the older kid is just like no that's not true so yeah like reggie is like she's slowly piecing together that things are probably not what they seem to be in this like mazy bunker and um i mean she's like this guy's asking her questions like do you have hepatitis he has to ask her like three or four times you know and she's like no eventually but yeah she's stalling and finally he tells her that you know we, we killed your sister your sister's dead <laughs> she was gonna die anyway but she she does escape from the room that she's you know trapped in and she makes her way to where the children are being kept and she saves those two children as well mm-hmm. the little girl with the bunny the stuffed animal <laughs> Yeah. And that whole thing is just hilarious because eventually, like, Hector and Sam show up. Uh, Sam's, you know, pretending to be a dead body, and then they get the jump on the guard. And it's kind of a jumbled mass of scenes where, you know, they're they're being saved, and, and everyone's – it's pretty smooth, honestly. And Hector, like, rigs one of their cars with dynamite to where – anyway, there was this whole bit with the bunny, like, the stuffed animal. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but it was, like – I thought the bunny was going to be used for something because the stuffed animal, like, Reggie had it that whole time. And the little girl's like, give me my bunny. It's my bunny. And she's like, in a minute. <laughs> and then after the chase scene, she's like, fine, here it is. <laughs> just gives her the bunny. And that was a bit. That was it. And I was just like, that's hilarious. So she wanted the bunny for herself just for the drive. Well, that little girl was like, no, seriously, I get car sick without my bunny. <laughs> so it was she a whole to, like, thing. Talk to her. I was just like, what is going on with this fucking bunny? Uh, and and like, that's, that's super funny to me. But uh, to me, like one of the funniest moments in this movie is when um, – the scientists are running around and they're trying to find Reggie who's escaped and Sam's already in there and they're not quite sure about that yet. But they get to those two female scientists and Reggie and Sam have put the masks over them. And so they're breathing in all this nitrous and they're just like giggling to death yeah. on the fucking table. <laughs> and they had taken the time to write out signs and tape it to them saying visiting Santa or something. Yeah, like gone to see Santa or something like that. <laughs> it's so funny because those women are just like cackling with those fucking masks on. <laughs> I like those. I, th- I thought that was well cast. Everything was really well cast, honestly. For real. And so yeah, they're we're you know, they're escaping. They've they've made their way out into Hector's car and they're they're like escaping and Hector says no, he wants to stop and watch. He planned with all those explosives and we get that moment 
where the head scientist has um fully become a zombie right and uh that scientist is dr carter played by jeffrey lewis and he, he looks just as scary as the other zombies are and he turns the key of the car and the whole thing explodes so they make their way back to la and then we get our epilogue some time has passed right and so we see that reggie and hector are kind of taking on the uh, parental roles of those two children they're kind of dressing up for an event you know and they're trying to take polaroid pictures which is so 80s and you know and they're a little little 80s get-ups and the kid has her bunny and and everything meanwhile uh sam is across the road and is like what do you what what, what are we what are you waiting for like just cross. There's no one here. And they're like, of course, Reggie's like, it's up to us. Society's up to us. So we're going to follow all the rules. You know, it's, it, you know, the buck stops here. What did she say? Like the burden of society is on our shoulders it, yes. or something like that. Right. <laughs> it's something like, it's like su- su- supremely deep. Yeah. Right. In a, in a movie that has been so incredibly, you know, on the surface, like shallow and it's but it's true though she's right you know i like to think that maybe this is christmas day that maybe not so much as time has passed i like to think that at least reggie and hector would like jump into these roles quickly yeah because the kids are just like whatever according to the math of the show um the comment would have come on the 14th and so i feel like everything that had happened during the movie was maybe three days tops yeah. You know, um, so yeah, it could just be like eight days later or something, you know, like a week later. And they've gotten them dressed up for Christmas Day. She's taking those pictures and everything. And um, and she's like really just concerned about how good they look. So you look so cute, you know, and I, I love that. Like they're all super dressed up, but Sam is standing across the street, you know, on the corner in like the most revealing fucking 80s outfit possible. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yeah. But yeah, so she 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 crosses the crosswalk um, against the light, which is what Reggie was telling her not to do, right? The burden of society is on their shoulders and she's going to buck it. But a car is speeding down the road and almost hits her. So she should have been watching anyway. And he was like, why would you go against the light? <laughs> that's, right, that's right. So this guy pulls up in this really nice car and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I almost hit you. But why were you crossing against the light? <laughs> And uh, I mean, like, she doesn't waste any time. She jumps in that car and she's like, okay, it's a, he's around her age. He's got some money. Obviously, he has 13 cars, well, which I assumed at first he stole. But me too. I mean, not stole, but just took ownership of, you know, they're, they're uh-huh. all dead. He's like, thanks. I have like 13 of them. You know, obviously, I, I found that to be very quickly like he's already amassed, you know, a home and cars and things like that for himself. But that car may have been his to begin with Could've because the, they be demand to know his they demand to know his name. Money doesn't matter anymore. So it almost doesn't matter. But yes, you're right. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. So, I mean, like he. His, his name is Danny Mason Keener, and he tells them his full name when he wants to know, like, you know, who he is. As one does. And as, <laughs> yep. I mean, like, if your sister's going to drive off in the apocalypse for an impromptu date, you want to know the full name just in case. <laughs> and so as, as Danny Mason Keener and Sam drive off down the empty streets of L.A., we see the vanity plate in the back of his car say DMK. Mm-hmm. And um, clearly, he's visited the El Rey before. Yeah. So And we know that he is not a rapist or something because... You know, anyone that plays arcade games is an okay person. That's right. If you play Tempest. At the Ar- at the El Rey Theater at LA. At the El Rey. <laughs> there ain't nothing strange about you. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally ship DMK and Sam. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it's good. I would love to see a sequel to this movie to know, like, what, what everyone's doing, <laughs> yeah. you know? <clears throat> but in that sequel, I totally imagine Sam and DMK to be 
a really happy couple. Yeah. So what do you think the themes are of this movie? I mean, obviously the on the surface stuff like teenage innocence and and you know teenage priorities are kind of you know the the feeling of the film but also like other movies that are in the 70s and 80s like dawn of the dead and you know many others even fucking like robocop and stuff there is a kind of a you know stance on consumerism or at least consumer culture yeah i mean i i think that those are like the the two main ones right like teenage culture and consumerism culture are really high in this and um I think that, you know, when Everhart made this movie, I think he's probably is a fan of Romero, right? It's why he included some sort of like zombie things. Uh, Hector has that whole conversation about like, you know, picking somebody up and his like truck being swarmed which is uh-huh. right out of Night of the Living Dead. And I mean, so obviously he probably had a lot of like consumerism on the brain. And in 1984, you know, that was pretty high in American yeah. culture, right? Buying things on your MasterCard and so on and so forth. But to me like this movie when it comes to teenage innocence and priorities is like a huge like jump from what things were previously right so i mean like in the 70s we're given some things like halloween and black christmas right this really feels 80s yeah this is an 80s movie like through and through leg warmers and everything yes you know, I mean, like everything about this movie is the 80s. There's so much neon. Yeah. In this I mean, movie. There's shoulder pads and, <laughs> so. and leg warmers and neon. But I mean, like we're, we're given some teenagers who are more than just like conscious about going to the mall or what they're playing on their, their yeah. boombox, right? Like these girls know how to take care of themselves. And that's, that's something that I don't think we really had gotten to see in movies up to this point, really. So, you know how I was thinking also watching this movie, especially by the end. I was thinking, you know how like Stranger Things, like season one uh, and two are kind of like an homage to like Stephen King and Spielberg and a bunch of that stuff. Well, I I have to say that Stranger Things season three is also that stuff in Spielberg, surely, but also a huge homage to Night of the Comet. You've got to continue your watch of Stranger Things. I was like, you were going to love season three. I know. I mean... (sighs) I probably, I mean, I, I don't know why I haven't continued to watch that, really. I just, so I, I rarely sit down and watch things on an episodic form. Like, I really like my stories contained to a small time frame. But, I mean, if, if watching The Boys has taught me anything, I need to go back and watch some season seasons of Stranger Things, because I'm sure they reference things like Night of the Comet. Oh, all the time. But, but I mean, like, season, season one was great, in my opinion, and season two was eh, but season three was to me as good or better than the first season. And it's so eighties. I mean, there's a whole thing along with like, um, the never ending story for God's sake, you know, <laughs> and the whole thing takes place in a mall, you know, and there's like JC Penny all over it from the eighties. And there's like, they got all the original bags for all these stores, you know, and I think like the bad guy headquarters is literally underneath the mall. And so it's just, it's awesome. Well, and this is your first time to watch Shine of the Comet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I watched it a lot when I was younger and then I sort of left it by the wayside. And um, a couple of years ago on a whim, probably around Christmas time, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch Night of the Comet. And I just like fell in love with it all over again. You know, I mean, yeah. like this movie is is really good. It, it, it has a, a good 80s message. I think that it's quintessentially 80s. And I mean, like this, this movie is kind of the reason why nostalgia boners 
exist, you know? So yeah, it'd be a good example of one for sure. Um, I got nostalgic just watching it, even though I'd never seen it before. Yeah. Because it just encompasses a vibe that you just don't see in movies anymore. Or even like there there was a vibe in like the original Terminator or, you know, or a couple of those, those eighties movies, quintessential eighties movies, but this one encapsulates all of it in one, you know, and it's so consistent in tone that I, I was truly getting nostalgic for, you know, being alive in the eighties and, and, you know, with those fashions and the sounds and the, the culture and everything else. It was um, really fun to watch. And this movie is almost kind of like this huge nod to like uh music video culture. There's almost always a pop song playing in the background yep. mm-hmm. in this movie. Right. So it's, it, it, any section of it could be considered like a separate music video. It was essentially scored with 80s music, not just a, like a synthesizer score. Right. Yeah. I mean, like there were lyrics and things like that. And I, I, I have gone back and, you know, since I watched it a couple of years ago and listened to this soundtrack and I like these songs, you know, even that really ridiculous cover of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. That is not Cindy Lauper singing that song, you know, but. Yeah, I, I thought I noticed that, too. I was like, this song doesn't it's why did they even have a cover of it? Why couldn't they just get their. I mean, I feel like it would have been the same licensing, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even know if like Cindy Lauper's version is a cover. You know, I, I don't know the full story on that. But I mean, like there's there's lots of like there's lots of really good 80s moments in this movie. And you know, we wouldn't call it that, you know, at the time. But here we are in you know the 21st century. And this is this is an 80s movie like through and through. Yeah, it's almost like a love letter to like you know 80s teenage horror or something without even knowing it was <laughs> and i think that this movie sort of like jumped off a whole series of films that i look back on fondly and i think a lot of like horror fans our age do things like night of the creeps or um i want to say return of the living dead even that yeah so i mean like there's like a whole series of movies that were released around this time period in the eighties that were super tongue in cheek that really paid attention and some homage to like 50s, 60s, 70s horror movies that came before it. And, you know, they, they paid enough respect, but they, they also had some funny moments in it. It was a really fun time to go and watch like some popcorn horror movies in the eighties and be able to laugh and just have a good time with the genre. And I, I think that it's something that we've lost since then. You know, I think that oftentimes, you know, horror is so serious, you know, and I, I look back on some movies that came out recently. I'm like, I hope that we get to these, this point again. We have things like Ready or Not that's like yep. funny all the way through it. And I'm like, we need to get back to this 80s sensibility that we can have a good time and watch a movie and still like it as a horror film. Well, we get those. I mean, I feel like we never really entirely lost that. I mean, the Babysitter series is out too. Yeah, that's true. You know, but th- those are hardcore like comedies though. Like this tongue-in-cheek thing, you know, it almost seems – you know where they're they're not going fully committing to comedy mm-hmm. you know where it's it's kind of like incidental you know like the closest thing i can think of is as to, to the striking that balance of a consistent vibe of this tongue and cheekiness <laughs> is uh, return of the living dead yeah it was a, it was a special time you know yeah. in that that the mid 80s where we have movies like this and um i really i really really appreciate it like these are some of my favorite movies to watch 
So before you ask your questions, because I feel like we're kind of wrapping up here, yeah. I do have some fun facts. Oh, good. I would love to know some. So the scenes of an empty Los Angeles were filmed in the morning on a normal business day. <laughs> The what? shots of the barren city were done so quickly, like like really quickly, while the traffic was held up at stoplights. Wow. Oh, my God. So they're God. all like super like they did it over a number of days in the mornings so they could get all the shots they needed. I, that's amazing to me because I know L.A. is like always, almost always yeah. busy. Right? Shoestring budget. <laughs> yeah. If you have like $700,000 to film on, you will stand there until you have a deserted street. Like, go, go do it now. Yeah. <laughs> you could not do that today. No, there's no way in fucking hell. Roxanne Benjamin is going to have to have a huge budget or set her movie somewhere else. Chance Boyer, who plays the little boy, uh, Survivor Brian, is the real-life son of actress Sharon Farrell, who plays Doris, their stepmother in the film. I wonder if she's punched him. (laughs) Across the room. (laughs) Mom, you were born with an asshole. You don't need Chuck. Punch. So I only have two more. Okay. Kelly Maroney improvised the line, see, that's the problem with these things. Daddy would have gotten us Uzis <laughs> because the weapon jammed for real. So, you know, director Tom Eber- Eberhardt told the uh, the cast to react to any unexpected occurrences and characters since time and budget were so tight and they needed to avoid retakes. So that was completely on her. And that's fucking smart on her on her part and his. And yeah. we already talked about earlier that he, you know, came from a PBS documentary series, right? Where it sort of gave him the inspiration for this movie. And it makes sense that he would tell his actors to do something like that. And I think this really speaks to Kelly Maroney a lot too. I think that she is superb in this movie. I think both of these actresses are super really? superb. So, yeah, it's great. So my final one when cheerleader Samantha Belmont, of course, played by Kelly Maroney, is playing at the radio station as a disc jockey, she says that uh, she's taking a request from All You Teenage Mutant Combat Zombies, which was the original working title of the film. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Teenage Mutant Horror Combat Zombies was the original working title of the film. That is an amazing title. <laughs> <laughs> which was later taken by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but, you know. <laughs> I mean... However, like, I, I think one of the big surprises of this movie is that it's, you know, as funny as it is. And if you have that title, it would have been like, you know, it's going to be funny going into it. Teenage so. Mutant Comet Zombies. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Comet Zombies. Horror in a comedy. Zombie power. <laughs> <laughs> Those were good. I like that. All right, so let's ask some questions about Night of the Comet, like we do for every movie that we deep dive. And we're going to start with, is Night of the Comet a Christmas movie? Very, very (laughs) incidentally, very adjacent with some padding. A little touch of padding, right? Yeah. I don't know when this movie was filmed, right? Um I kind of imagine that it was already Christmas time when he was filming and he couldn't like choose to like change the sets up a little bit. He so he made it around Christmas time. But um, for those of you who listen to our show regularly, you know that I love holiday horror. I don't care what the fucking holiday is. I just like it around a certain time period in the year. And um, I can be very loose with my love of holiday horror and other holiday movies. Like I consider Die Hard a Christmas fucking movie, right? And I just watched um, Long Kiss Goodnight. I consider that a Christmas movie. Yeah, so sure. I mean, it's an excuse. I, I think you know Christmas is happening. There's Christmas lights and trees and all that stuff. So you know, 
Yeah. I mean, so you want to watch things that are, you know, Christmas. There's a Christmas parade in Lunka's Goodnight, for God's sake. That's right. And snow everywhere. But yeah. so, yeah, I, I totally consider this movie to be Christmassy. And, um, you know, since I rediscovered it a couple of years ago, I have added it to my, my Christmas list. Do you consider it to be a horror movie? I guess we should ask that question. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> At first, though, like the first half of it, I was just like, mm, I'm not sure this is a horror movie. This is like straight up like dark comedy sci-fi, you know, mm-hmm. but then it, it, it does progressively get more and more, you know, horrific. But so I would say it's solidly in the horror genre. Not yeah, even adjacent. At the very least, it pays a lot of homage to movies that we would consider to be horror movies, right? Yeah. Especially from the the fifties and sixties, right? There's a lot of Roger so, Corman reference. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so yeah. I mean, we can call it incidentally Christmas. We can call it incidentally horror. Um, but I think the main takeaway from this movie isn't about the horror or the Christmas. It's really just about these two female characters, and that's just totally what this movie is supposed to be so agreed all right so out of five stars what would you rate not of the comet i rated it four stars i also rated it four stars i thought it was really good i i was really super impressed with the consistency of its tone like i've said so many times yeah so i mean I, i four stars all the way i think this movie is super enjoyable like we said before like you like you said it's tonally well done and I, you know, I, I really want people to go and see this movie and watch it, especially if you haven't seen it at all. Mm-hmm. If you're of the like the age of like, I don't know, maybe like 30 or higher, like you need to go see this movie if you haven't seen yeah. it. You, you will enjoy it. All right. So were you scared watching Night of the Comet? Not at all. Uh, I got a little nervous, I think, and a little horrified slightly for a moment with the 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 gang you know the stalkers <laughs> yeah the stock boys i should say you know but other- we can call them stalkers yeah. <laughs> i mean it's just spelled differently but yeah the stock boys the stalking boys no but um not really no and i don't think you're supposed to be yeah i mean i i i don't i don't even think as a child watching this movie i was scared I mean, it's just, it's really fun. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, even in fun adventure movies, people get put in some peril. But, um, you know, I never really thought they were going to to die. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, finally, and some might say most importantly, who is the hottest guy in Night of the Comet? My vote goes to Mark Popple as Danny Mason Keener, or DMK. Really? Yeah, I thought he was cute. That is so shocking to me. At the very end, yeah. <laughs> not Dick Rude? <laughs> not Dick Rude, no. <laughs> Certainly not Dick Rude. I have to go with Robert Beltran. Like, okay. really, he's just like... I think he's super hot in Voyager. Like, I didn't want to watch Voyager in the first place, right? My husband... Asked me to watch it because his favorite TV show. So I did. Yeah. And I thought Chakotay was super hot. And I think he's also super hot in this movie. Like he just has a nice face. It's something about his lips <laughs> okay. that just really does it for me. So, Uchigote. 
All right, well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Night of the Comet. Uh, if you've seen this movie or want to talk about our opinions or review of it, um, head over to social media. You can find us at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Let us know what you thought of Night of the Comet, if it's a nostalgia boner for you, or if it's a new watch. We'd love to hear what you think. Also, this is kind of the last uh, major episode of this month. We're going to take a little bit of a hiatus, but please expect a small gift to drop on Christmas Day. That's right. Even with the break, we can't not give you a little gift around Christmas time. And that's not to say this is really our last episode for December. If you head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers, you will find our December bonus episode. And what are we covering this month, Chris? The ultra controversial horror adjacent film, Noah. I haven't seen it. I know you like it. I'm ready to watch it. Yeah. So we'd like to call out our new patrons on shooting the flames so head over there and do that and also leave us a review we like to get some little christmas gifts as well so if you're listening on apple podcasts leave us a five-star review a little snippet of why you like us and we'll read that on shooting the flames yeah and we haven't had one in quite the while so it really 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 helps us out and uh yeah so other than becoming a patron if you uh, want to help us out by just leaving us a five-star review on apple Podcasts, that would be super super helpful it would certainly make our yuletide gay even gayer (laughs) (laughs) okay so happy holidays stay safe everyone and until next time sweet dreams I'd like an Uzi for Christmas. I mean, like, really. (laughs) You were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I've never once shot a gun in my life, but the first time I do, it needs to be an Uzi. Like, for real. I need a hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just take one of those Mac 10s. Because you're such a fucking fucking housewife, right? It's made for a housewife. (laughs) 